3. Lyruth, all the rest had died of a dreadful sickness, or plague. He had been stolen by some sailors and carried to England, there he had learned the language. After his return he had joined an Indian tribe that lived about 30 miles further west. The chief of that tribe was named Massasoit, and Squanto said that he was coming directly to visit the pilgrims. In about an hour Massasoit, with some 60 warriors, appeared on a hill just outside the settlement. The Indians had painted their faces in their very gayest style black, red, and yellow. If paint could make them handsome, they were determined to look their best. 69. Massasoit and Governor Carver make a treaty of friendship, how Thanksgiving was kept, what Squanto did for the pilgrims. Captain Standish, attended by a guard of honor, went out and brought the chief to Governor Carver. Then Massasoit and the governor made a solemn promise or treaty, in which they agreed that the Indians of his tribe and the pilgrims should live like friends and brothers, doing all they could to help each other. That promise was kept for more than fifty years, it was never broken until long after the two men who made it were in their graves. When the pilgrims had their first Thanksgiving, they invited Massasoit and his men to come and share it. The Indians brought venison and other good things, there were plenty of wild turkeys roasted, and so they all sat down together to a great dinner, and had a merry time in the wilderness. Squanto was of great help to the pilgrims, he showed them how to catch eels, where to go fishing, when to plant their corn and how to put a fish in every hill to make it grow fast. After a while he came to live with the pilgrims. He liked them so much that when the poor fellow died he begged Governor Bradford to pray that he might go to the white man's heaven. 70. Canon accused dares Governor Bradford to fight, the palisade, the fort and meeting house, west of where Massasoit lived. There were some Indians on the shore of Narragansett Bay, in what is now Rhode Island. Their chief was named Canonicus and he was no friend to Massasoit or to the pilgrims. Canonicus thought he could frighten the white men away, so he sent a bundle of sharp, new arrows, tied round with a rattlesnake skin, to Governor Bradford, that meant that he dared the governor and his men to come out and fight. Governor Bradford threw away the arrows, and then filled the snake skin up to the mouth with powder and ball. This was sent back to Canonicus. When he saw it, he was afraid to touch it for he knew that Miles Standish's bullets would whistle louder and cut deeper than his Indian arrows. But though the pilgrims did not believe that Canonicus would attack them, they thought it best to build a very high, strong fence, called a palisade, round the town. They also built a log fort on one of the hills, and used the lower part of the fort for a church. Every Sunday all the people, with Captain Standish at the head, marched to their meeting house, where a man stood on guard outside. Each pilgrim carried his gun, and set it down near him. With one ear he listened sharply to the preacher, with the other he listened just as sharply for the cry, Indians, Indians, but the Indians never came. 71. The new settlers, trouble with the Indians in their neighborhood, Captain Standish's fight with the savages. By and by more emigrants came from England and settled about 25 miles north of Plymouth, at what is now called Weemouth. The Indians in that neighborhood did not like these new settlers, and they made up their minds to come upon them suddenly and murder them. Governor Bradford sent Captain Standish with a few men, to see how great the danger was. He found the Indians very bold. One of them came up to him, wetting a long knife. He held it up, to show how sharp it was, and then patting it. He said, by and by, it shall eat, but not speak. Presently another Indian came up. He was a big fellow much larger and stronger than Standish. He, too, had a long knife, as keen as a razor. Ah, said he to Standish, 
So this is the mighty captain the white men have sent to destroy us. He is a little man, let him go and work with the women. The captain's blood was on fire with rage, but he said not a word. His time had not yet come. The next day the pilgrims and the Indians met in a log cabin. Standish made a sign to one of his men, and he shut the door fast. Then the captain sprang like a tiger at the big savage who had laughed at him, and snatching his long knife from him, he plunged it into his heart. A hand-to-hand fight followed between the white men and the Indians. The pilgrims gained the victory, and carried back the head of the Indian chief in triumph to Plymouth. Captain Standish's bold action saved both of the English settlements from destruction. Footnote 13, See Longfellow's The Courtship of Miles Standish. This quotation is truthful in its rendering of the spirit of the words used by the Indian in his insulting speech to Standish, it should be understood, however, that the poem does not always adhere closely either to the chronology, or to the exact facts, of history. 72. What else Miles Standish did, his death. But Standish did more things for the pilgrims than fight for them, for he went to England, bought goods for them, and borrowed money to help them. He lived to be an old man. At his death he left, among other things, three well-worn Bibles and three good guns. In those days, the men who read the Bible most were those who fought the hardest. Near Plymouth there is a high hill called Captain's Hill. That was where Standish made his home during the last of his life. A granite monument, over a hundred feet high, stands on top of the hill. On it is a statue of the brave captain looking toward the sea. He was one of the makers of America. 73. Governor John Winthrop founds Boston. Ten years after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, a large company of English people under the leadership of Governor John Winthrop came to New England. They were called Puritans, and they, too, were seeking that religious freedom which was denied them in the old country. One of the vessels which brought over these new settlers was named the Mayflower. She may have been the very ship which in 1620 brought the pilgrims to these shores. Governor Winthrop's company named the place where they settled Boston, in grateful remembrance of the beautiful old city of Boston, England, from which some of the chief emigrants came. The new settlement was called the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Massachusetts being the Indian name for the Blue Hills near Boston. The Plymouth Colony was now often called the Old Colony, because it had been settled first. After many years, these two colonies were united, and still later they became the state of Massachusetts. Footnote 18, Colony, here a company of settlers who came to America from England, and who were subject to the King of England, as all the English settlers of America were until the Revolution. 74. How other New England colonies grew up, the Revolution. By the time Governor Winthrop arrived, English settlements had been made in Maine, New Hampshire, and later 1724, in the country which afterward became the state of Vermont, Connecticut and Rhode Island were first settled by emigrants who went from Massachusetts. When the revolution broke out, the people throughout New England took up arms in defense of their rights. The first blood of the war was shed on the soil of Massachusetts, near Boston. 75. Summary. The Pilgrims landed at Plymouth, New England, in 1620. One of the chief men who came with them was Captain Miles Standish. Had it not been for his help, the Indians might have destroyed the settlement. In 1630, Governor John Winthrop, with a large company of emigrants from England, settled Boston. Near Boston the first battle of the Revolution was fought. Why did some Englishmen in Holland call themselves pilgrims? Why had they left England? Why did they now wish to go to America? Who was Miles Standish? From what place in England? And in what ship? Did the pilgrims sail? 
What land did they first see in America? What did they do at Cape Cod Harbor? What did the pilgrims do on the Cape? Where did they land on December 21st, 1620? What happened during the winter? What is said of Samoset? What about Squanto? What about Massasoit? What did Massasoit and Governor Carver do? What about the first Thanksgiving? What is said about Canonicus and Governor Bradford? What did the pilgrims build to protect them from the Indians? What is said about Weymouth? What did Miles Standish do there? What else did Miles Standish do besides fight? What is said of his death? What did Governor John Winthrop do? What did the people of New England do in the Revolution? Where was the first bloodshed? Lord Baltimore 1580-1632. 76. Lord Baltimore's settlement in Newfoundland, how Catholics were then treated in England, while Captain Miles Standish was helping build up Plymouth. Lord Baltimore, an English nobleman, was trying to make a settlement on the cold, thawed the island of Newfoundland. Lord Baltimore had been brought up a Protestant, but had become a Catholic. At that time, Catholics were treated very cruelly in England. They were ordered by law to attend the Church of England. They did not like that church any better than the pilgrims did, but if they failed to attend it, they had to take their choice between paying a large sum of money or going to prison. Lord Baltimore hoped to make a home for himself and for other English Catholics in the wilderness of Newfoundland, where there would be no one to trouble them. But the unfortunate settlers were fairly frozen out. They had winter a good share of the year, and thought all of it. They could raise nothing, because, as one man said, the soil was either rock or swamp, the rock was as hard as iron, the swamp was so deep that you could not touch bottom with a ten-foot pole. 77. The King of England gives Lord Baltimore part of Virginia, and names it Maryland, while Lord Baltimore paid for it. King Charles I of England was a good friend to Lord Baltimore, and when the settlement in Newfoundland was given up, he made him a present of an immense three-cornered piece of land in America. This piece was cut out of Virginia, north of the Potomac River. The king's wife, who was called Queen Mary, was a French Catholic. In her honor, Charles named the country he had given Lord Baltimore, Maryland, or Maryland. He could not have chosen a better name, because Maryland was to be a shelter for many English people who believed in the same religion that the queen did. All that Lord Baltimore was to pay for Maryland, with its 12,000 square miles of land and water, was to Indian arrows. These he agreed to send every spring to the royal palace of Windsor Castle, near London. The arrows would be worth nothing whatever to the king, but they were sent as a kind of yearly rent. They showed that, though Lord Baltimore had the use of Maryland, and could do pretty much as he pleased with it, still the king did not give up all control of it. In Virginia and in New England the king had granted all land to companies of persons, and he had been particular to tell them just what they must or must not do, but he gave Maryland to one man only. More than this, he promised to let Lord Baltimore have his own way in everything, so long as he made no laws in Maryland which should be contrary to the laws of England. So Lord Baltimore had greater privileges than any other holder of land in America at that time. 78. Lord Baltimore dies, his son sends emigrants to Maryland, the landing, the Indians, Street Marys. Lord Baltimore died before he could get ready to come to America. His eldest son then became Lord Baltimore. He sent over a number of emigrants, part of them were Catholics, and part were Protestants, all of them were to have equal rights in Maryland. In the spring of 1634, these people landed on a little island near the mouth of the Potomac River. There they cut down a tree, and made a large cross of it, then, kneeling round that cross, they all joined in prayer to God for their safe journey. 
A little later, they landed on the shore of the river. There they met Indians. Under a huge mulberry tree they bargained with the Indians for a place to build a town, and paid for the land in hatchets, knives, and beads. The Indians were greatly astonished at the size of the ship in which the white men came. They thought that it was made like their canoes, out of the trunk of a tree hollowed out, and they wondered where the English could have found a tree big enough to make it. The emigrants named their settlement Street Marys, because they had landed on a day kept sacred to the Virgin Mary. The Indians gave up one of their largest wigwams to Father White, one of the priests who had come over, and he made a church of it. It was the first English Catholic church which was opened in America. The Indians and the settlers lived and worked together side by side. The red men showed the immigrants how to hunt in the forest, and the Indian women taught the white women how to make hominy, and to bake Johnny cake before the open fire. 79. Maryland the home of religious liberty. Maryland was different from the other English colonies in America, because there, and there only, every Christian, whether Catholic or Protestant, had the right to worship God in his own way, in that humble little village of Street Mary's, made up of thirty or forty log huts and wigwams in the woods, religious liberty had its only home in the wide world, but more than this, Lord Baltimore generously invited people who had been driven out of the other settlements on account of their religion to come and live in Maryland, he gave a hearty welcome to all, whether they thought as he did or not, thus he showed that he was a noble man by nature as well as a nobleman by name. 80. Maryland falls into trouble, the city of Baltimore built, but this happy state of things did not last long. Some of the people of Virginia were very angry because the king had given Lord Baltimore part of what they thought was their land. They quarreled with the new settlers and made them a great deal of trouble. Then worse things happened. Men went to Maryland and undertook to drive out the Catholics. In some cases they acted in a very shameful manner toward Lord Baltimore and his friends, among other things. They put Father White in irons and sent him back to England as a prisoner. Lord Baltimore had spent a great deal of money in building up the settlement, but his right to the land was taken away from him for a time, and all who dared to defend him were badly treated. St. Mary's never grew to be much of a place. But not quite a hundred years after the English landed there a new and beautiful city was begun 1729 in Maryland. It was named Baltimore, in honor of that Lord Baltimore who sent out the first emigrants. When the Revolutionary War broke out, the citizens of Baltimore showed that they were not a bit behind the other colonies of America in their spirit of independence. 81. Summary. King Charles I of England gave Lord Baltimore, an English Catholic, a part of Virginia and named it Maryland in honor of his wife, Queen Mary. A company of emigrants came out to Maryland in 1634. It was the first settlement in America in which all Christian people had entire liberty to worship God in whatever way they thought right. That liberty they owed to Lord Baltimore. Who was Lord Baltimore? And what did he try to do in Newfoundland? How were Catholics then treated in England? What did the King of England give Lord Baltimore in America? What did the King name the country? What was Lord Baltimore to pay for Maryland? What did the king promise Lord Baltimore? What did Lord Baltimore's son do? When and where did the emigrants land? What did they call the place? What is said about the Indians? Of what was Maryland the home? Why did some of the people of Virginia trouble them? What is said of the city of Baltimore? What is said of the revolution? Roger Williams 1600-1684-82 Roger Williams comes to Boston. He preaches in Salem and in Plymouth, his friendship for the Indians. Shortly after Governor John Winthrop and his company settled Boston, 
a young minister named Roger Williams came over from England to join them. Mr. Williams soon became a great friend to the Indians and while he preached at Salem, near Boston, and at Plymouth, he came to know many of them. He took pains to learn their language, and he spent a great deal of time talking with the chief Massasoit and his men, in their dirty, smoky wigwams. He made the savages feel that, as he said, his whole heart's desire was to do them good. For this reason they were always glad to see him and ready to help him. A time came, as we shall presently see, when they were able to do quite as much for him as he could for them. 83. Who owned the greater part of America? What the King of England thought, what Roger Williams thought and said, the company that had settled Boston held the land by permission of the King of England. He considered that most of the land in America belonged to him, because John Cabot had discovered it. But Roger Williams said that the king had no right to the land unless he bought it of the Indians, who were living here when the English came. Now the people of Massachusetts were always quite willing to pay the Indians a fair price for whatever land they wanted, but many of them were afraid to have Mr. Williams preach and write as he did. They believed that if they allowed him to go on speaking out so boldly against the king that the English monarch would get so angry that he would take away Massachusetts from them and give it to a new company. In that case, those who had settled here would lose everything. For this reason the people of Boston tried to make the young minister agree to keep silent on this subject. 84. A constable is sent to arrest Roger Williams, he escapes to the woods, and goes to Mount Hope. But Mr. Williams was not one of the kind to keep silent. Then the chief men of Boston sent a constable down to Salem with orders to seize him and send him back to England. When he heard that the constable was after him, Mr. Williams slipped quietly out of his house and escaped to the woods. There was a heavy depth of snow on the ground, but the young man made up his mind that he would go to his old friend Massasoit, and ask him to help him in his trouble. Massasoit lived near Mount Hope, in what is now Rhode Island, about 80 miles southwest from Salem. There were no roads through the woods, and it was a long, dreary journey to make on foot, but Mr. Williams did not hesitate. He took a hatchet to chop firewood, a flint and steel to strike firewood, for in those days people had no matches, and, last of all, a pocket compass to aid him in finding his way through the thick forest. Illustration, striking fire with flint and steel. The sparks were caught on some old, half-burnt rag, and were then blown to a blaze. All day he waited wearily on through the deep snow, only stopping now and then to arrest or to look at his compass and make sure that he was going in the right direction. That night he would gather wood enough to make a little fire to warm himself or to melt some snow for drink. Then he would cut down a few boughs for a bed. Or, if he was lucky enough to find a large, hollow tree, he would creep into that. There he would fall asleep, while listening to the howling of the wind or to the fiercer howling of the hungry wolves prowling about the woods. At length, after much suffering from cold and want of food, he managed to reach Massasoit's wigwam. There the big heart Indian chief gave him a warm welcome. He took him into his poor cabin and kept him till spring there was no board bill to pay. All the Indians liked the young minister, and even Canonicus, that savage chief of a neighboring tribe, who had dared Governor Bradford to fight, said that he loved him as his own son. What cheer, friend, when the warm days came, in the spring of 1636, Mr. Williams began building a log hut for himself at Seekonk on the east bank of the Seekonk River, but he was told that his cabin stood on ground owned by the people of Massachusetts, so he, with a few friends who had joined him, took a canoe and paddled downstream to find a new place to build. What cheer, friend, 
Watch here, shouted some Indians who were standing on a rock on the western bank of the river. That was the Indian way of saying how do you do. And just then Roger Williams was right glad to hear it. He landed on what is now called Watchier Rock, and had a talk with the red men. They told him that there was a fine spring of water round the point of land a little further down. He went there, and liked the spot so much that he decided to stop. His friend Canonicus owned the land, and he gladly let him have what he needed. Roger Williams believed that a kind providence had guided him to this pleasant place, and for this reason he named it Providence. Providence was the first settlement made in America which set its doors wide open to everyone who wished to come and live there, not only all Christians, but Jews, and even men who went to no church whatever, could go there and be at peace. This great and good work was done by Roger Williams. Providence grew in time to be the chief city in the state of Rhode Island. When the revolution began, every man and boy in the state, from 16 to 60, stood ready to fight for liberty. 86. Summary. Roger Williams, a young minister of Salem, Massachusetts, declared that the Indians, and not the King of England, owned the land in America. The governor of Massachusetts was afraid that if Mr. Williams kept on saying these things the king would hear of it and would take away the land held by the people of Boston and the other settlements. He therefore sent a constable to arrest the young minister and put him on board a ship going back to England. When Mr. Williams knew this, he fled to the Indian chief, Massasoit. In 1636 Roger Williams began building Providence. Providence was the first settlement in America which offered a home to all men without asking them anything whatever about their religious belief. Who was Roger Williams? What is said about him and the Indians? Who did Mr. Williams think first owned the land in America? How did many of the people of Massachusetts feel about Mr. Williams? What did the chief men of Boston do? What did Mr. Williams do? Describe his journey to Mount Hope. What did Massasoit do for Mr. Williams? What did Mr. Williams do at Seekonk? What happened after that? Why did he name the settlement Providence? What is said of Providence? What about the Revolution? King Philip time of the Indian War. 1675-1676. 87. Death of Massasoit, Wamsit and Philip, Wamsit a sudden death. When the Indian chief Massasoit died, the people of Plymouth lost one of their best friends. Massasoit left two sons one named Wamsit, who became chief in his father's place, and the other called Philip. They both lived near Mount Hope, in Rhode Island. The governor of Plymouth heard that Wamsit was stirring up the Indians to make war on the whites, and he sent for the Indian chief to come to him and give an account of himself. Wamsit went, but on his way back he suddenly fell sick, and soon after he reached home he died. His young wife was a woman who was thought a great deal of by her tribe and she told them that she felt sure the white people had poisoned her husband in order to get rid of him. This was not true, but the Indians believed it. 88. Philip becomes chief, why he hated the white men, how the white men had got possession of the Indian lands. Philip now became chief. He called himself, King Philip. His palace was a wigwam made of bark. On great occasions he wore a bright red blanket and a kind of crown made of a broad belt ornament with shells. King Philip hated the white people because, in the first place, he believed that they had murdered his brother, and next, because he saw that they were growing stronger in numbers every year, while the Indians were becoming weaker. When the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, Massasoit, Philip's father, held all the country from Cape Cod back to the eastern shores of Narragansett Bay, that island a strip about 30 miles wide. The white settlers bought a small piece of this land. After a while they bought more. 
and so they kept on until in about 50 years they got nearly all of what Massasoit's tribe had once owned. The Indians had nothing left but two little necks of land, which were nearly surrounded by the waters of Narragansett Bay. Here they felt that they were shut up almost like prisoners, and that the white men watched everything that they did. 89. How King Philip felt, signs of the coming war, the praying Indians, the murder. King Philip was a very proud man quite as proud, in fact, as the King of England. He could not bear to see his people losing power. He said to himself, if the Indians do not rise and drive out the white men, then the white men will certainly drive out the Indians. Most of the Indians now had guns, and could use them quite as well as the whites could, so Philip thought that it was best to fight. The settlers felt that the war was coming. Some of them fancied that they saw the figure of an Indian bow in the clouds. Others said that they heard sounds like guns fired off in the air, and horsemen riding furiously up and down in the sky, as if getting ready for battle. But though many Indians now hated the white settlers, this was not true of all. A minister, named John Elliot, had persuaded some of the red men near Boston to give up their religion, and to try to live like the white people. These were called, praying Indians. One of them who knew King Philip well told the settlers that Philip's warriors were grinding their hatchets sharp for war. Soon after, this, praying Indian, was found murdered. The white people accused three of Philip's men of having killed him. They were tried, found guilty, and hanged. 90. Beginning of the war at Swansea, burning of Brookfield. Then Philip's warriors began the war in the summer of 1675. Some white settlers were going home from church in the town of Swansea, Massachusetts. They had been to pray that there might be no fighting. As they walked along, talking together, two guns were fired out of the bushes. One of the white men fell dead in the road, and another was badly hurt. The shots were fired by Indians. This was the way they always fought when they could. They were not cowards, but they did not come out boldly, but would fire from behind trees and rocks. Often a white man would be killed without even seeing who shot him. At first the fighting was mainly in those villages of Plymouth Colony which were nearest Narragansett Bay, then it spread to the valley of the Connecticut River and the neighborhood, Deerfield, Springfield, Brookfield, Groton, and many other places in Massachusetts were attacked. The Indians would creep up stealthily in the night, burn the houses, carry off the women and children prisoners if they could, kill the rest of the inhabitants, take their scalps home and hang them up in their wigwams. At Brookfield the settlers left their houses, and gathered in one strong house for defense. The Indians burned all the houses but that one, and did their best to burn that, too. They dipped rags in brimstone, such as we make matches of, fastened them to the points of their arrows, set fire to them, and then shot the blazing arrows into the shingles of the roof. When the Indians saw that the shingles had caught, and were beginning to flame up, they danced for joy, and roared like wild bulls but the men in the house managed to put out the fire on the roof. Then the savages got a cart, filled it with hay, set it on fire, and pushed it up against the house. This time they thought that they should certainly burn the white people out, but just then a heavy shower came up, and put out the fire. A little later, some white soldiers marched into the village, and saved the people in the house. 91. The fight at Headley, what Colonel Goff did, at Headley. The people were in the meeting house when the terrible Indian war hoop rang through the village. The savages drove back those who dared to go out against them, and it seemed as if the village must be destroyed. Suddenly a white-haired old man, sword in hand, appeared among the settlers. No one knew who he was, but he called to them to follow him, as a captain calls to his men, 
and they obeyed him. The astonished Indians turned and ran. When, after all was over, the whites looked for their brave leader. He had gone, they never saw him again. Many thought that he was an angel who had been sent to save them. But the angel was Colonel Goff, an Englishman, who was one of the judges who had sentenced King Charles I to death during a great war in England. He had escaped to America, and, luckily for the people of Headley, he was hiding in the house of a friend in that village when the Indians attacked it. Illustration, Indian attack on a settlement. The building on the right is a blockhouse, or fort made of hewn logs. These blockhouses were built as places of refuge for the settlers, in case of an attack on the town by the Indians. Footnote 8, Warhoop Warhoop, a very loud, shrill cry made by the Indians when engaged in war, or as a shout of alarm. 92. How a woman drove off an Indian. In this dreadful war with the savages there were times when even the women had to fight for their lives. In one case, a woman had been left in a house with two young children. She heard a noise at the window, and looking up, saw an Indian trying to erase the sash. Quick as thought, she clapped the two little children under two large brass kettles which stood near. Then, seizing a shovel full of red-hot coals from the open fire, she stood ready, and just as the Indian thrust his head into the room, she dashed the coals right into his face and eyes. With a yell of agony the Indian let go his hold, dropped to the ground as though he had been shot, and ran howling to the woods. 93. The Great Swamp Fight, Burning the Indian Wigwams, What the Chief Kanonche said. During the summer and autumn of 1675 the Indians on the west side of Narragansett Bay took no open part in King Philip's War. But the next winter the white people found that these Indians were secretly receiving and sheltering the savages who had been wounded in fighting for that noted chief. For that reason, the settlers determined to raise a large force and attack them. The Indians had gathered in a fort on an island in a swamp. This fort was a very difficult place to reach. It was built of the trunks of trees southeast. 